Hello, everyone. I'm Yanka, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Catherine Borman, a violinist in the Cleveland Orchestra. Earlier this year, Catherine and I were paired as a part of a new mentoring initiative here at New World Symphony in Miami. She's an alumni of New World, and I am currently a violin fellow here. And it was great timing to meet her and get some inspiration during this extremely weird COVID-19 pandemic year. In addition to being a violinist with the Cleveland Orchestra since 2011, Catherine is also the first alumni member of the Board of Trustees for the New World Symphony. She has degrees from Rice University and the Juilliard School, and has made appearances at Strings Music Festival, mainly Mozart Festival, Aspen Music Festival, and Tangled Music Festival, where she was also a member of the contemporary music ensemble New From Players. She's also a guest lecturer at Baldwin Wallace University and at the University of the Pacific's Conservatory of Music. And over the past few months of getting to know Catherine, we've had some great conversations. So I figured it would be great to have her on the podcast to share her wisdom and perspective with all of you. In the episode, we talk about what it's like to be a musician in a top-tier orchestra and how she maintains her technique, artistry, and inspiration. We also talk about the things outside of music that a musician must do to be their best self, especially the importance of being quiet and going within yourself so that you can better share your art with others. And of course, we talk about the grueling audition process to get a job like this and certain tips she has for getting better at auditions. It was definitely a bit of a music geeky episode, but still, I think it's a conversation anyone can enjoy and get something out of, even if you're not a musician. Anyway, it was so great to have her on. Even though she has one of the best music jobs in the country, she's extremely humble and down to earth. And we had a great conversation. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode with Catherine Borman. Okay, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, normally we do like a biotype intro before this and record one. But um, can you give us like a personal version of who you are and what you do generally? Sure. Um, I am a violinist in the Cleveland Orchestra. I've been here for 10 years. Um, I did my undergrad at Rice University in Houston, went on to grad school at Juilliard, and then spent four years at the New World Symphony in Miami, where <laughs> where you are now. So shared experience. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, how'd you start playing the violin? <laughs> Um, so my mom got her degree in piano and music therapy, and there were a lot of uh, amateur music musicians on both sides of my family. So everybody really loved music. Uh, they played piano growing up. A lot of them sang. My dad did a little percussion in high school. Um, so there was a lot of just general enthusiasm and support for music. But my mom thought, since I moved around so much, I was a very energetic, small person. She thought the violin I could take with me wherever I went. So um, she found a Suzuki teacher for me. And I started when I was about four and just just kept going with it. I, I ended up doing my last two years of high school at Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so that was a that was a really special place. That was sort of the the point in my life where uh, it, it felt as though I really wanted to, to try to make a career out of this or, or to see if I could have an opportunity for a career in music. It, it, it was the tipping point for me. And I, for the first time in my life, I was around so many international students and, and had so many friends from other countries and, and parts of the U.S. And, and that was a really exciting thing. And just to be surrounded by other art forms. I mean, Interlochen has... Um, 
you know, dance, drama, creative writing, visual art, all those things. And I, I think I think that's kind of how in an ideal world the arts should be. They should be surrounded with each other and complementing each other. And mm. and that was so inspiring to to have other friends um just in the thick of their own art form. We, we really it was a special place. It was kind of a magical time. And then you realize all the similarities between them when you're talking to some like I we have a one of our good friends is a writer. And I'll talk about what we do. And he's like, well, that's exactly the struggle I have with finding the perfect sentence. Or, you know, you write the same sentence and erase it, write it again, erase it. And mm-hmm. it's like, we do the same thing with our, you know, passages and our music and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think when you're kind of engaged in that sort of craftsmanship, you're you're engaged really with your own mind and how you yeah. yourself learn and grow and develop. And so it's a, it's a very exciting inward path as well as being something that you share eventually with the world. <laughs> so right. it, yeah, we all share the same basic structure to our mind. That's why we yeah. like, he'll, he'll always, uh, we, we, when I talk to him, you know, he might not hear the same qualities of like trumpet sound or violin sound or something, but he has this concept of voice in in writing. Mm-hmm. Like when you read certain writers, they just have such a distinct voice and you can't quite describe exactly why. It's just, you know it when you see it. It's mm-hmm. like when you hear Mahler, you know it's Mahler, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. And he's even gotten good enough to recognize Mahler and Sibelius and, Sibelius and stuff. And stuff. Yeah, he true. just intuitively, wow. yeah. yeah. Nice, he recognizes their voice. That's, that's yeah, beautiful. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, I, he probably would not have been able to do that without the concept first arriving to him through writing let's say sure yeah so my next question was going to be like was there like a tipping point like a moment where you developed this like inspiration towards music besides interlocking I think you answered my question (laughs) there were you know there were maybe a couple different ones um interlocking just generally was definitely one but I before I went to interlocking I played in so I grew up in North Dakota Mm -hmm. um and there were there was a wonderful community orchestra, um, and and it was just just based on again local amateurs, um, doctors and insurance agents and, <laughs> and lawyers and and teachers, some of the music teachers around town, and we played um, some pretty big works. We did Shostakovich symphonies and Liszt and Beethoven, and um, I. I was pretty young. Um, I was sort of one of the only uh, junior high age kids in the orchestra and and the adults were very nice and very welcoming towards me. Um, And I think it was just being exposed to the great orchestral rep that got me so excited and got me thinking about, well, what if I could do this for a living? What if, you know, and and it it maybe sounds a little cheesy, but it it was pieces like, the Great Gate of Kiev in pictures at an exhibition. Oh, yeah. Those, you know, those really rapturous big things, and you know, Carmina Burana and Pierre Gant, and um, I just had such a thrill getting to play those those pieces. And and that's that's when I started thinking, gosh, you could could I do this for a living? Because I, I would love that. So the repertoire of the orchestral music really drew me in. That's so nice. I have such a similar story. So it's the first time in my life. It's a little bit different, but same type of inspiration. The first time in my life I heard a full orchestra. I was 11 because like in the city that I grew up originally, we didn't have a full orchestra. Like we just had chamber orchestras. So I remember hearing Lalo's Symphonie Espanol and I was just like, oh my God, like this is 
what like this sounds like it's, it was just so inspiring for me and I think that was the moment when I thought of like just I need to do this <laughs> like it was just incredible isn't it gripping it's it's and and I can understand um you know sometimes in classical music circles there there are some audience members who really don't like new music and um that that can be that's a whole other topic but Sometimes I can I can sympathize with people who want to hear the same works over and over that they know and love that they're familiar with because they they just they return to those those familiar pieces again and again and I mean that's great that's that's wonderful you know of course we want to encourage our audiences to develop new favorite works <laughs> mm-hmm. but but it's I, I have I, I feel like I can really understand why. Sometimes people just want to want to hear those familiar favorites. Why those war horses get played so many times? Yeah. Because they are spectacular. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I I could never get sick of Tchaikovsky four. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I or the same the, movies we watch all the time. There's a true. reason for it because it's cutting to something deep that is probably below language. If it were like the simple message, like here's the lesson, blah 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 blah. It's like. You no, know, it's like it's, every time you watch it, you notice different details yeah. and have new favorite moments and take away new lessons or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We constantly watch Star Wars lately. That's I love Star Wars. Okay, good. Perfect. <laughs> 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 just like rewatching it for the 20th time. That's all. Awesome. It's so good. Oh it my really gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we were just playing um, a, a brass septet this week at New World and. Uh, we were talking about the London's Philharmonic principal trumpet and how that very first note of the uh, episode four of Star Wars was his first note playing with them uh, after oh. he won the job. That that slightly sharp B flat was. <laughs> it really was slightly sharp. Perf- perfectly sharp, I should say. <laughs> like down from B flat. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Really, I Maurice something. Know. I'm forgetting his last name, but yeah. <laughs> oh goodness! Yeah, it, we've when we've played those those movies out at Blossom. I mean, the audience just goes crazy because again, they're, they're it, it's the launch of this this epic thing that they're really familiar with, yeah. and it's so thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tanglewood. They they, they did that, where yeah. they play along with Epi- A New Hope and um, cut out all the music layer yes. from the movie, but still play the movie. Yes. Um, I can't imagine how hard that is for the orchestra to just I know. stay on point for that. They were still not cracking a single note after like two hours, which was magical. The bra- And like, I, we couldn't even find a place to sit at the lawn. It was just one of the most magical Tanglewood moments for me to watch the new hope and then just listen to it. I don't know. Absolutely. It's great music. John Williams is truly a genius and one of my favorite. I, the, the score to Hook is also Oh. Absolutely, one of my most favorite scores and movies. I grew up with that. I think that came out when I was like ten or something. Uh-huh. And so, so that's another one that that I it's kind of ingrained. But I the, should revisit the, that then. Yeah. Yes, the flight to Neverland. That's okay. oh, so so beautiful. One of his best. And Jaws cool. is actually really tricky. We we played that one summer, and there's there's a piece of the score to Jaws that's called the shark tank fugue <laughs> and it's surprisingly really tricky and i think it took some of us by surprise when we had to practice that because it's not yeah. easy you're like it's jaws it's a minor second what could go wrong <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's so funny. funny yeah the the inspiration like it's funny i didn't get into star wars until i was later i didn't even know I, I watched movie i didn't connect what a symphony orchestra was in my mind until i was like 17 and 
my teacher was like, oh, you should audition for this youth orchestra. I'm like, isn't that for strings though? She's like, no, it's a symphony orchestra. I'm like, what's that? Like, I didn't connect like these movie soundtracks. I didn't listen to classical music otherwise. None of my like family is musical or anything. Mm-hmm. And then I went to an orchestra concert. I was like, whoa, like just the the way an orchestra sounds when you hear it live for the first time is just like, um, I mean, I heard, you know, okay orchestras. And then I remember hearing the Chicago Symphony in Carnegie Hall in, in 11th grade. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it was Mahler 1, too, so it was just mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would be an incredible experience. Going back to high school band the next morning was a little <laughs> difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you think, I mean, have you guys, do you find among maybe some of your peers that movies and now a lot of times video games some of these scores are so involved and complex. That's that's how yeah. some people are yeah. coming to classical music. Yeah, yeah. video games. Uh, what's this? It's a kind of a funny puzzle game. World of Goo. Oh god! Oh, <laughs> and it has it has this trumpet theme that I always just warm up on because it has such a good character to it. Um, Zelda is like, so cool. I love Zelda's score. I think it's beautiful. But yeah, yeah. When yeah. you find a melody, like it, a great composer finds great melodies. I think you know. Exactly. And some of these video games or movies, yeah, like Star Wars is a space opera, let's be honest. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Without singing. <laughs> nice. Absolutely. Have you ever played any of those um, concerts where they actually play the movie and you're playing the soundtrack? We have done that. We've been doing that the last probably five years at least. Um, So they sort of, they do those in the summer at our summer home at Blossom. They'll do Mm -hmm. some of the big ones, Harry Potter, Star Wars. We've, we've done also kind of classic films like singing in the rain, um, Casablanca, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very repetitious. (laughs) (laughs) We've done um, Psycho, uh, North by Northwest. So it kind of tends to be either blockbuster John Williams movies or, old time um, films and Mm -hmm. and both of those are, those are fun. I think they're hardest perhaps for the conductor because they have to be watching these screens. We don't use click tracks. Um, Mm -hmm. We we just go with the conductor who has to really, um, you know, visually follow along on a monitor in front of them. And so, you know, but, but audiences love it. And and a lot of times the music is, is great. (laughs) So, yeah. That's, it really yeah. is. Some of the times, not so much, probably, but a lot of the <laughs> Some time, of the it times, did. yes. I, I think Casablanca. I, I think that was just extremely repetitious, and so was Psycho. That there, there was sort of like the knife shower scene music, and then there was this really calm, kind of like minimalist, sort of spooky. <laughs> it was like one or the other. It was. It was yeah. kind of in between. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so my next question is um I was doing a little bit of research slash stalking for our episode. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out that um Strauss's Rosenkavalier has a special place in you. Yes. I was just curious if you'd like to briefly talk about why that piece is special for you and if there are any other pieces or composers that are near and dear for you. Sure. Um gosh, you know. A lot of times, and and you too, I'm sure you get asked, you know, who are your favorite composers or what's your favorite piece? And it's so hard to to pin that down to one, mm-hmm. like a favorite book or a favorite movie. But Richard Strauss, I, I feel like um, he, he has such soaring, incredibly passionate, moving melodies, and he has really great instrumentation. I feel like 
the entire orchestra is always showcased with Strauss. And, yeah. and so I feel like there, you, you can never go wrong with a piece, with a piece by him. But the reason why Rosen Cavaliers is, is pretty special to me is because um, when I, when I was in my fourth year at new world, um, I, I was, you know, a living on borrowed time because I didn't have a job and I was, you know, facing the big wide world of auditions and I was taking auditions everywhere. And um, the financial crisis of 2008 had happened, you know, the year before. And so there, there weren't a lot of jobs. It, and it's been interesting in this pandemic to kind of look at some of the similarities yeah. of what nonprofits have gone through and, and arts organizations and and how things just kind of come to a halt for a little bit. It's it's felt a little eerie to revisit because th at that time, the orchestras had hiring freezes and they they were not hiring subs and they were doing all many of the same things that's, that are happening now. So, um, you know, I, I was just feeling worried kind of about the future. And, and we played, we ended up playing in December of 2009, the, the Rosen Cavalier Suite mm -hmm. um, and, and Mark Wigglesworth conducted. And, and I always remember him because he had, he had very flashing eyes and he, he reminded me of Napoleon. He had a lot of charisma and, and he's, he's a man, not of super tall stature, but a lot of intensity. And, and it was such a fun piece to get to, to play, but um we were playing it and I was just feeling, you know, so sad and thinking, oh gosh, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to audition or, or get a job. And, and that piece, just how beautiful it was stuck with me. I, I was actually kind of teary on stage as we played it. Cause I thought, gosh, this might be one of my only times in life that I'm going to get to play this piece with an orchestra. And, you know, your friends at new world, your, your the other fellows are around you and you've had so many great experiences with MTT and, so um, that, that kind of caught me at a raw time. And to this day, whenever I get to play that piece again or hear that, I, I think back and can't imagine how I could be so lucky as to have gotten a job in, in music and, and in an orchestra. And it, it just kind of reminds me how fortunate, how fortunate I've been and, and how lucky we are as musicians to, to every day experience these great minds and these these incredible hearts and hearts and minds of of the composers and other musicians and our our friends so so it's a, it's yeah. a reminder of joy it's like attached into your memory that way yeah i i love how pieces can do that um if they just you encounter them either playing or or in the audience at the right time when something's happening and then it just lodges into your brain with that emotion or whatever Absolutely. I remember so thinking that um, having this kind of like, like zoomed out thing before playing a Mahler 5 concert once and thinking like how many hours of mastery have gone into all the aspects that make this happen from Mahler himself composing to instrument makers inventing how to do that to all of us musicians putting in our 12, 15,000 hours to lead up to that point to the conductor studying not just the music, but everything, you know, like yes, to the people that run the concert hall that make that balance that budget to even make it happen, you know, yeah. like, and then it all comes together into that thing. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we had an internet yeah, glitch. We there. had a weird glitch for a second. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's just assume it's you fine. <laughs> Um, speaking of all this, like, in 
Speaking of all this like inspiration towards music and stuff, how has that changed for you over your time, like being in a professional orchestra? Have you had to refine that or rediscover that or find new uh, versions of it or whatever? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let's see. Uh, I think so. Since I've been in the orchestra, which I can't, which I can't believe, which is scary, the, the time has gone. The time has gone so fast. I, I don't understand how, how it's been. To, um, I think the first few years, you're really working so hard to just get through a lot of music and, you know, sort of master the week to week and, you know, try to fit in with your surroundings and getting to know your colleague, and getting the tenure process. And um, after maybe five to 10 years, as I've been told, that you've seen most of the repertoire, certainly not all, but you've seen a lot of it. And you're coming back and revisiting quite a few pieces. And so it's easier in that sense that you're more familiar with with what's coming at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think it's important and what maybe what um, one has to find is, first of all, to, to keep up with your colleagues. I mean, I, I find that really ins- inspiring and kind of humbling is to look around and and hear <laughs> how how my colleagues play and and to sort of stay sharp. Um, you know, to maintain your technique and to to keep working on pieces. That's that's something that this pandemic has has brought home to me. It's actually been very fun to revisit pieces from college or even high school and and just to play through some solo repertoire. And yeah. um, you know, I, I think um, it's really nice to be able to do chamber music whenever you can. Um, and and I have over the last years gotten to do a lot of various things. I, I would love to have a, a permanent quartet. I, I, I would love to make that happen maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's tricky because you come in and ensembles are already kind of formed with people, but chamber music is, you know, is, you know, is such an uh, important part of all of our musical lives. So um, I don't get tired of, I, I never get, I can't imagine myself. <laughs> you could talk to me in 20 years. I can't imagine myself ever getting tired of what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps sometimes some people do. Um, I can't imagine that. Some things you you do perhaps you're aware of you're aware of more ten years in. you're you're aware of um, the the difficulties of maintaining, I think this pace and this job, and you're you're aware of, sort of the direction managements take or or the direction, you know, you, you, you do have to work hard to to maintain good relationships with colleagues. And and that's mm-hmm. e- even in a, just a nice way when you get along with people, when there are wonderful colleagues, you're around each other a lot. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. We, we go on tours together, or at least we used to, and we will again. And when you go on a tour, you're around each other almost 24 seven, we're in the same hotels, same buses, airports, and, and, and then you're at work together. And then you're at the hotel, you know, a cafeteria restaurant together. And so sometimes you need longevity and, and just to, to remain, um, to, to find your own time, your, your own private time, but also your, your good relationships with colleagues. And I think that's, that's a long-term process that you don't know until you settle down in an orchestra. 
Yeah, it's kind of what you said before about like you have to go inward to bring art outward. And yes. sometimes I've I've been traveling with one group of musicians where I'm like, I, I got to just eat dinner by myself in the hotel room. No offense to anyone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I need to have some me time. Like, <laughs> It's true. You, you need a certain amount of solitude as an artist. I think that's really true. And then, and then you have, you have more energy to bring back to, yeah. to the yeah. group. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you and I were talking in the beginning of this year that um, the establishing a routine is so important to survive from this like crazy year. So I was just curious, what were some, you mentioned you were revisiting some old pieces from high school, but what were some like personal routines that you were doing to like stay sane during COVID? <laughs> you know, um, I, I did a, quite a bit of yoga, which was super helpful. And, mm. and of course the mental side of that, you know, the meditative part is really good. And, and I'm not a very flexible person. <laughs> Like probably in any sense. So, so yoga uh, for me to do it at home is actually much better than going to a class because if I go to a class live, it, you know, nobody's judgmental, but I look around and I can't do a tenth of what the people do and the instructors, you know, are in these elaborate poses and, and I'm just trying to not fall over. So doing yoga at home was a very helpful thing. So I could not judge my, my own self. Um, I took did a lot of, yeah. did you? <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. I took Luke and then he was just like staring at me like, why are we here? <laughs> They just started the class. I was like, oh, this is like my first time ever, <laughs> by, the like, by the way. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, it is. It is not easy, but, but that, that was useful. And I took a lot of walks and that was I really felt like sort of Beethoven taking a walk in nature and listening to the birds. And that, that was very, very peaceful. Um, working in my yard, working in the garden helped. Um, practicing scales and practicing old pieces, it it, it felt to me as though, um, I, I not that I had lost the joy of that, but I had more time to do it. And more time without any pressure of, of a deadline and and just to just to like be with my own sound and to to, to revisit i don't know like to to feel the ease of working again with my own mind or figuring things out in a kind of a puzzle way i mm -hmm. it's hard to describe and i journaled a lot too i did i did quite a bit of writing and i wrote some little fiction on the side for myself and that oh, was cool. kind of freeing so <laughs> Nice. Writing fi I write Lucas, a lot of yeah. like, stuff, but yeah, I, I, I find writing fiction just like there's a block for me. I, I just I'm like, where the <laughs> hell do I start from? Like, <laughs> Have you ever heard of the uh, NaNoWriMo? It's National Novel Writing Month. No, I haven't. So this might be your, your way to get into fiction. Okay. It, it's, it's this thing a guy in California started, I think, 20 years ago. And um, all you do is for one month, you, you're going to write... 50,000 words, a 50,000 word novel. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yes, and you don't worry about how terrible it is. In fact, you tell yourself it's going to be awful, yeah. but you just do it. And and it, that's why I did this in November. And it was very fun. And, huh. and you just try to stick to the word count each day. Yeah. And somehow your brain, like a trapeze artist, reaches out and catches you and, and comes up wow. with the most crazy plots. So, yeah. And then do you like, do you share them or publish them as part of this thing? Or is it just for you? You don't have to. It, it okay. can be just for you. Some people do, but I, yeah. I did not. <laughs> it was the deep, dark computer writing secret. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I love doing that stream of consciousness type stuff for myself, like more like journaling. Um, just in my iPhone, I'll like walk and watch the sunset and then just type for cool. 20 minutes or something. But the idea exactly. of being like, here's a character I've invented. This is what they're <laughs> going to do. I'm just like, it, I don't know. I, I could probably figure it out if I forced myself, of course, but uh, I think that's it doesn't come natural. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you might that's try. Let me know if you do it. Yes, you guys could. <laughs> you might be prime candidates for this. Yeah. <laughs> is it every November or something? That's that's the traditional month to, to do it in. I think okay. because the weather's bad is why he decided to do it in November. I oh, don't okay. know. <laughs> well, well the weather's good. never bad here. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. I know. We'll Maybe do it in August hot. when it's too hot to walk around. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Exactly. Yes. Choose the worst weather month for your climate. <laughs> so you mentioned before like that that feeling of during Rosen Cavalier, like you were getting emotional on stage. I've had that happen to me a few times and then I, I have to sort of like like dial it back. I'm like in the middle of playing the end of Mahler 5. I'm like, wait, I won't be able to play these high notes if I'm just like also engaged with the music. Like, is that a conscious thing you found? You have to find this like emotional playing, but also enough detachment to be technically like sound? For sure. I, I One of my teachers in, at Juilliard said to me, <laughs> when you're playing, you have to be a little cold-blooded. Mm. Because if you get lost in the rapture, you're right. It's not technically going to come out, and you're going to get distracted. So you have to you have to maintain a percentage of focus and, and detachment, and just really what what are you doing to accomplish mm -hmm. the musical mission? Yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, I, I gave myself an injury basically, like just because I couldn't detach. Like I, especially like I was so moved with like playing Brahms, like just romantic, and the first instinct was to just like grip onto this yes. like for life, just crazy vibrato, and I yeah, got injured really badly at the end of that. So I'm trying to yeah detach a little bit. It's it's very hard to do though when you're so into the music that you're playing. I think I don't know. It I mean, is. when you're in the audience and, and you feel certain music, like your body will sort of tense up with the tension of the like Strauss, for example, mm -hmm. right? These yeah. long tension building things, you're just like, when, when, and then he arrives, you know, and, but if you're playing that, you have to stay relaxed. Otherwise you won't get yeah. to the end of that lyrical solo or whatever it is, you know? Exactly. So, so let me ask you guys this question. I, I have some colleagues who really don't enjoy playing like Debussy or Ravel, because they feel the, the the audience kind of gets the the benefit of that. That it's something it's not as fun for them to play it. It's more fun to hear. Now I don't necessarily feel that way, but but they do. And I wonder if you guys ever feel that way, or if there are any composers that you'd rather listen to than than play. Well, that's hmm. so interesting. For me, I can answer that immediately. <laughs> for some reason, Bruckner, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's so long and I'm a violinist. This is like yes. falling asleep towards the end. I won't say who, but I remember a, a musicology teacher or he's a composer, but um, I better be, I won't say who, but I remember them saying the sentence, Bruckner is bullshit. <laughs> oh, God. No, I mean, I love listening to him. No, I disagree, but I, I hate playing. Yeah. Um, I, haven't, I haven't played a lot of Bruckner, but I know as a brass player, I would be excommunicated if I said anything bad. So, because he, he writes so much, you know, exposed, loud stuff for brass. But for me, I would, I would, I would think um, it, when I listen to Mahler, I'm in a different place than when I play Mahler. 
Uh-huh. I just have to, when I listen to it, I'm not so engaged with even like, this is the trumpet part. I'm more like, yeah. you know, Mahler's one of those composers I've done a deep dive into and like tried to read about his life so much and watch as many, you know, documentaries about that time period in Vienna and, and just try to dive into that world. So I feel like I just am in a very different place listening than if I'm just like, all right, <laughs> I'm playing yes. third trumpet. Here's when we have this together and I'm just more aware of what to do. Yes, I totally get that. And it's it's interesting you mentioned Bruckner because <laughs> I think your opinion is shared by many people. And um, what's funny is when I joined this orchestra, we were in the middle of a Bruckner recording cycle <laughs> <laughs> because our conductor, Franz, who Franz Wilserpost, who is Austrian um, and from Upper Austria and grew up in the area Bruckner had, had been the organist, um, we, we were in the midst of these recordings. And Bruckner, n- not until I went with the orchestra on tour and we went to St. Florian Abbey um, in this beautiful church, where, where Bruckner had played and been organist. Um, not until we played Bruckner there did I really get Bruckner, because he has these symphonies, as you know, where there are these huge pauses, like these, these giant fermata rests. And when you play those symphonies in St. Florian, that's how long the reverb takes to mm-hmm. finish ringing. And and so suddenly things like that, it made sense. Suddenly I felt like I connected with Bruckner and, and then again, the beauty of those surroundings. And, and of course, anytime you play more and you learn more, you have a better understanding of whatever it is. But yeah, it yeah. took me until going there and experiencing Bruckner in his sort of home church. And then his crypt is downstairs. You know, we, we went to oh, see wow. Bruckner's crypt. And so you kind of felt like his spirits were, his spirit was there somewhere. So that right. made a difference too. Wow. That's so amazing. I, that I, I think takes us to the next question that was in my mind. I was just curious, how important do you think it is to like know the background of the Piece. Can you phrase it maybe a little better than I attempted? I don't know. Sort. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. We've noticed like a lot of musicians are just like, you know, this is my job to play the notes on the page and then close the case and go home. And I feel like it's it's like like a great conductor. Um, this week we were playing this piece, and I'll be perfectly honest, it, w- it was by Carl Ruggles. It's called Angels, and I was like, this is a weird thing. I learned it and then showed up to the rehearsal and. Um, MTT took the first 15 minutes to just talk about Ruggles and what a weird guy he was. And he sang like the creepy, like song he wrote for his kid, like toys. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) and then he was like, anyways, that's what's going on with this guy in this piece. Like it's supposed to be creepy angels, like all gathering in a dark shadowy, like, and we're like, okay. Like once you spent the time to dive into the background, do you find yourself doing that? I think you were trying to ask, right? Like yes. just getting underneath your main mission of playing notes together and in tune. And you yeah, because you told me like Bruckner made so much sense when you had that realization. Like how far do you go usually to find out what those little things about composers? That's what I was curious about. That's, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, again, w- maybe one of the biggest things that has helped me feel a connection to composers is reading their letters, Mm. because I guess it's that um, sort of that primary source. Last year I was reading the letters of Prokofiev and that was super interesting. And, Mm. and I felt like 
I just felt like I knew this person so much more, the details of how he would write things, the things he was interested in, so many mechanical things like typewriters and, and gadgets that were coming out around that time. And and the fact he was in Scientology and that he was, you mm. know, dealing with these headaches on a regular basis. And I mean, there was, there was such a flood of personal connection, but um, you know, you guys, you guys would have your own stories with this, but again, maybe that tipping point, the first time I, I sort of got to tap into this, this sense of knowing the composers and doing research was, was it interlocking? And, and I had this wonderful Russian teacher, Julia Bushkova, um, who now teaches at University of North Texas, and she was a huge influence, and she still is. Um, and, and the Russians, I love all Russians because they're so intense and so, <laughs> yeah. you know, uncompromising in terms of their standards, and they are, they are so engaged with with beauty and meaning and and um just intellect you know kind of scary sometimes and i was playing this piece i was playing debussy the girl with the flaxen hair mm-hmm. um which i loved because i had heard a heifetz recording and one day in a lesson she leaned back and she said to me um darling you need to go and do research for next week <laughs> and you need to tell me um, who was Debussy? When did he live? You need to look up expression, impressionism, and the light and the colors and the paintings and the, and and so I had to give a report on this piece and and Debussy and what it meant. And so I went to the library and I looked up all this stuff, and I came back and talked to her about it. But the whole week I was playing, thinking about about impressionism and thinking about light. And anyways, long story short, I played this piece for her. And she was she was eating an apple because I don't think she ever took <laughs> lunch breaks. She she worked constantly. It's inefficient. <laughs> yes, I know. She was eating. Maybe it was a pear. I think she was eating a pear while I played. And as I played, she stopped and she set the pear down. And I could just feel her attention. She was always paying attention, but I felt her sort of zoom in. And it was a moment I felt like I'd played more musically, more convincingly because of that learning about WC and, and then having a connection and trying to put you know these layers of meaning into this very short piece mm-hmm. and so that was sort of the beginning for me of of uh, I guess uh, my own musicality or, or trying to, yeah. to to bring something to an audience and when you do it that way where you sort of flood your subconscious with the whole world that the composer was in it emerges so naturally in your own playing like it's yes. not, you know, if you say, here's how you be musical, phrase it like I just did, and then you just copy it. It's like, you'll start to get along the way somewhere, but the other way is to go to the ground floor and then find your own inspiration. That's yes. happened to me over the past couple of years with Bach, because I've been mostly playing Baroque trumpet and doing like deep dives into Bach's life. And, you know, previously the cantatas were like, you know, you just play what's on the page, you know, and, and modern trumpet players still play Bach like it's like blocks of sound at the right time. It's like there's text, there's religious, like, like praise God type emotion under the music. It's not just, you know, yes. robotic. And um, that just becomes obvious when you study like the biblical passages and like Bach's writings, you know, like Bach wrote like very explicitly like my mission is to write a complete like music literature to the glory of god you know 
So even if, if I'm an atheist, I have to believe in God if I'm going to play Bach, at least for the, the length of whatever piece I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you enter their world. Enter their world, exactly. Yeah. And for composers where that hasn't happened for me yet, I, have, I can listen to it and I'm like, all right, this is not, I'm not connecting to it, but I bet if I put in the time, I will. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you, do you ever, so we were talking about um, this in lots of other episodes. Um, do you know something called a hedonic adaptation? <laughs> I'm sure you. It's, say that again, which, what adaptation? It's um, called hedonic adaptation. Hedonic. Oh, hedonic. I, I'm yeah, not that's really familiar. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So probably you can explain it better than I do. It's known as like the happiness treadmill. It means like um, you get like, I'll give you the example. Like when we arrived in Miami, I was like, whoa, palm trees. Like this is crazy. And now I'm like, yeah, whatever, palm trees. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my okay. question was like, does you, that You ever- adapt to, to the things that are new to you. They, they really excite your body. And, and then your body always averages back to a, they call it a set oh. point of happiness. Okay. Um, and so if is, you've played Mahler 5 for the first time, you're like, oh my God, this is great. And then on the 200th time, like, you know, you're not going to have that same spike of like, gotcha. you know, dopamine hit when you, when you get it or something. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So I was trying to ask, like, does that ever happen to you over the course of some time? Like with specific composers maybe, or like just generally? Um, gosh, yeah. Um, I think, I think that's something that one has to be really careful to, um, (laughs) kind of guard against in, in some ways, you know, of course there's nothing you can do the first time you play a Mahler five, it won't be the same as, as the other 50 times you play it. So, so in one sense, there's not a lot you can do to um, recreate that. Um, somebody like C.S. Lewis, uh, who is an author I, I happen to really like, um, he, he talks about that and he kind of says, you know, what, what we do in life is to just be open to the joy or the, the experience of the moment and not, not try to, to fit that, that, you know, 500th Mahler 5 into the box that it was the first time, because you mm-hmm. can, you can get new joy out of the 500th time. It's not going to be like the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think it's good to sort of encourage a freshness or a lot of times gratitude is a part of that to just um, even let's say perhaps it's a conductor you don't love who's in town and, and you're playing, you know, and you don't love their interpretation. I, I think when I face those moments, I can still say, you know, gosh, I like this piece and okay, he's taking it slower than I would like. Well, I can, uh, today's a day I can really zone in on my intonation or I, you know, I can mm-hmm. think you, you, you give yourself sort of little side tasks mm-hmm. to, to encourage again, your own little freshness. And, yeah. and I, I always feel like sometimes, sometimes I think um, people can feel as though the orchestral life, um, they, they can be a little condescending at times towards it. They're like, well, you, you're, it's not a chamber group. You don't have a lot of say in what you do. And <laughs> that, that's always irritated me super, super highly mm-hmm. because I feel like uh, Ideally, an orchestra is just a large chamber group. And mm-hmm. yes, it's true that you aren't, as, as a section violinist, you aren't making the same decisions that a conductor is, or let's say a concertmaster or a principal second. But 
you you have a lot of power in your own playing and you are a part of a musical mission. And it's very hard to be at the back of any section and, and really feel as though you're contributing and that you're accurate with the front and that you are unified with your stand partner. It's it's a challenge. So I think looking at it that way is is another way to kind of find joy and, and purpose. And and it it, it isn't an, an ego, you know, sort of a trip. It's it's a more hopefully it's something more in service to the music. Yeah, I think once you can shift that that mission to be in service to something that's not your own yeah. self. Um, it's a lot easier. I know for me, like um, the concept from meditation called beginner's mind. Yes. Like I try to make a mental note if I'm every year playing um, Handel's Messiah and going over trumpet shell sound again. And it's not like the notes are hard in trumpet shell sound. It's getting through it, having the endurance and just not, again, not just playing the notes like so many trumpet players do. And I try to approach it with beginner's mind, like, okay, what does this mean? Let me build it from the ground up again and forget all of the cobwebs that have grown on it over the years and just see it fresh. Um, it's hard, but you have to you have to put a different kind of effort. It's not just like logging in time type of practicing. It's like going for a walk on the beach and listening to it and trying to see it from a totally new way. And then that inspires a new approach to practicing and I was about to switch to Turkish. I was about to say falan filan. <laughs> Jesus. Amazing. Now you know how I feel like 80% of the time. <laughs> so funny. I, I have a question actually for you guys. Now, I think it's interesting, trumpet and violin, that combination of a match. I do, do you, too. Have you ever considered why these are? this is a good, a good match of instruments and well, personalities? <laughs> I've had two previous... Girlfriends, and they've both been violinists as well. So there's a pattern, <laughs> I guess. I see. I see. <laughs> um, I I would suppose it's either it's probably something like we're both crazy enough to, to play the <laughs> instrument we do. <laughs> Maybe right. <laughs> and I think we both don't have the like personality requirements that are associated with the instrument negatively. <laughs> like oh, trumpet good. players are just like it's like meatheads. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You don't have that. Like I'm not. I don't want to yeah. say violinists are egotistical, but like, that's like, there's this like weird stereotype. Like I'm so not that for instance. No. So. <laughs> We're both outliers from the, the norm of people who play the instrument. So I think that's probably why we bond more than anything, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I could be with a non-musician. That might be tricky. It might be hard. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's specific instrument, like personality types. Certainly. I mean, there are. <laughs> But I've always wondered, like, do the personalities find the instruments or do the instruments craft the personalities or probably a little bit of both? I know. That's a great question. Have you <laughs> ever played? There, there's a there's a kid's concert. Um, the composer is dead. And it's, it's a children's book. And a composer, Stuckey, wrote music for it. We, we did that. I think a lot of orchestras have played this for an education concert. But So it's a, it's a sort of a detective mystery as to who killed mm -hmm. the composer. And it takes you through the different instruments in the orchestra. And it makes some very funny stereotypes okay. come, <laughs> come to light. Like, like, you know, first violins who have the more important parts and second violinists who are more fun at parties. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really kind of true. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, if you said, would you rather go to a party at the principal trumpet player's house or the fourth trumpet player's house? I'm going over the fourth trumpet player's house. Yeah. I'm joining you there. They're probably too. a lot more chilled out. <laughs> right? I think so. There's something to it. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think I would be happy like with a high pressured principal trumpet job because it you can ask her like living with me when I have something really yes. crazy. Like I'm just a different person. It puts me into a different um, yeah, it's hard to even like talk or exist. I'm just usually like, okay, you do your thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> but I do have the same thing. I think I'm a really good second player, and that's what I enjoy doing. Like, I just nice. love blending. I just love following. Like, just that's yeah. what I naturally yeah. love doing. But yeah, so we, I think, in that way, match. I guess. Yeah, we're both we're both not just like, um, you know, the stereotype of our instruments. I think we're sort of equally. Kind of just not at home in our instrument, but yet here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. So I, <laughs> it's a good match. I, exactly. Um, I, I must ask this, of course. <laughs> Do you have a like no, number one like audition tip or anything? Oh, just a personal uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Um, number one audition tip. Um, I guess I would just say. Uh, I think the number one thing that is important in an audition is consistency. And that was what I felt like I had to learn. I, I had to really practice. And, and I, I actually turned to a lot of percussionists and brass and wind players because I felt they were so consistent whenever they had solos in orchestra. And um, I, I wanted to get better at, you know, how can I nail the shift every single time and not worry about it? How can I have good sound and get the stroke correct every single time? How can I shift from composer to composer really fast every single time? Mm -hmm. So I think um, building in, I think what we should do as musicians is build in reliability. And that is understanding how your brain works, how your physical setup maybe works the best. So it's picking shifts that your body kind of naturally does well. It's, it's picking positions or um, you know, just various physical, technical things that your body gravitates towards, playing to your strengths, and then just repeating that in a way that when it comes time to execute, whether it's it's a performance or it's an audition, you feel um, very confident in that you're going to be able to do that no matter how tired you are or if you don't feel well, that you can mm -hmm. do it under pressure. Okay. Were you more of like a structured audition taker? Like I do this every time or were you more like you know wiggly more spiritual like you know <laughs> i'm just gonna be there and let it happen kind of you know um when i the, the couple of times where i just sort of went with it in a free flowing way i did very poorly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i i found i had to be pretty structured but i also found um that i had to put in a lot of trust and faith um, that that I couldn't worry too much about the outcome, and that's mm -hmm. very hard to do when you need a job, when you, when it <laughs> when it counts. You know, it's yeah. easy to say, "Oh well, this is," you know, I, I can be very free because this is a, a chamber music concert for people who love music, and they're they're not musicians. They won't judge too harshly if it's not perfect. I mean, of course, you never want to do that. You want to play your best at any time, but for an audition, I, I had to do the work be structured in my thinking. And then I had to somehow really try to hope and, and let go of the outcome. And that's when I felt like I played the best. 
Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I love this advice. It's just so, so, so. <laughs> This so is like what I need. And also like, I think the part that you were saying you need to physically find what's working for you is something that I started trying to incorporate the last year or so, especially after this injury that I had. Yeah. Um, I had to change some things because I'm like, this is not working for me. Mm-hmm. And even though I f- have this feeling that maybe things are not working like the same for me, like I don't have the same endurance and stuff, like maybe it's some partly psychological, maybe it's not. I feel like I'm so much more smart with how I do things. And then that made me improve so much the past year or so. Wouldn't you say? Awesome. Like I would always go to him and be like, oh my God, I think no. today I figured I've it made, out. <laughs> I made a discovery. It's going to change everything. Look. And, like, and I'm like, sit every day. sounds good. You said that yesterday though. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful though. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, I think at, at the time, uh, Basically, when we get to sort of grad school age, especially we and, and as we go throughout life, we have to be our own teachers more and more and more. And, and you know, you can always play for friends and old teachers and colleagues, but we I think we have to really sort of be our own best advisors. And, and as we listen to ourselves to fix things or to to make things seem easy and, and to practice in a way that communicates ease to our audience is is a big thing. So yeah, and to ourselves even, right? Like, yes. if I just remind myself that there there's a way for this to be easy, then I'm like, it's okay, it's easy. Like, and then it yeah. it's easier. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of, of like fight, I always tell my students like in a battle between your tiny lip muscles and a piece of metal, the metal will win. But if you get along with it, then you can make something. You can you know yes. find a balance and and it it resonates and rings and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, ready for some bonus questions? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are not like rapid fire questions. Take as much time as you want. But <laughs> Lightning round. In two words or less, what's the biggest? No. <laughs> um, uh, the first one is, what's the biggest thing you can think of that you changed your mind over on about over the last 10 years? Ooh, about anything? Anything, yeah. Ooh, Wow. That's a great question. Um, have I changed my mind about? I always love this one makes people's faces go, oh, crap, let me <laughs> yeah, think. It's my favorite one. I just love one. <laughs> um, you know, I hate to say it, but like, I, I guess various things in politics of... Um, I, I don't know if this is this will make a lot of sense, but I, I guess I feel like because things in politics are so divided right now, um, and I feel like there are valid arguments about different issues on both sides, but but each side doesn't hear each other and doesn't do a good job of explaining rationally mm-hmm. anymore. It feels like it feels like there's so little dialogue. Um, and and so I guess I feel like, I swing, I've always been kind of moderate politically and and I feel like I can understand or sympathize with arguments on both sides. Again, depending on the issue, it's complicated, but yeah. um, I guess I've changed my mind. I, I feel like there's so um, little room for thoughtful dialogue and for trying things, to, for mm-hmm. trying whoever's side is in charge, whoever, you know, I, I feel like we just don't try things in a wholehearted way. Mm-hmm. And, and analyze how they're working. 
And so to me, as just as a citizen, I feel more and more confused about what are the right things to do that that are going to have any good impact and and how can we bring both sides together? Um, I I don't know if that means, I guess I've changed my mind, but I, I I feel like I vacillate uh, into how things could be better. Maybe that's, that's a more accurate description. So I, I, I guess I feel kind of discouraged a lot of times. Yeah, then, I would you know, totally in the news, agree with that. Politics. I would. I would. I, I. I've been calling it like politically homeless. That's how I feel. Yeah. It's like, um, if you, um, who was it? Uh, if some some famous author said like you should be able to play gracefully with ideas, and that Ooh, means nice. like entertain ideas in a detached and graceful way, not just like, like this like robotic like ideological. I'm going to just. Yeah. Um, say exactly, you must mean this then instead of just being a little bit more open and, and slow and less reactive. And yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I don't see that happening. It might be social media's fault. I don't know. Everybody's like having their own little bubble. Yeah. And then the whole way that you think of reality is like, reality is my bubble, but it's like, no, your bubble is crafted by algorithms. Yeah. We're trying to <laughs> <Right>. get, <laughs> keep you using the apps. Yeah. yeah. And um, somebody else's bubble is very different and they think that is reality. And then yeah. when those bubbles are too far apart, you don't even remember that it's talking and creating a shared reality and a shared narrative that is how you even have a country in the first place, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many people feel this too. And then like, they don't even want to say that because then they'll be like, well, what do you mean exactly? And they'll try to pin you down. Like, (laughs) It's true. It it does feel even almost a little risky to to say something like that because that can be misconstrued. But, uh, you know, I guess, I I guess I'm sort of at the point where I feel like, um, you know, our public servants, um, should be more servants. And <laughs> yeah. it, and I, I guess there is so much in politics now that's attached to money and to longer terms and offices and corporations and, and things like that, that I, I guess that's what I find um, becoming more and more of a problem, that there's a yeah. prize in, in public office. And I, you know, I, I, that, that seems kind of yeah. a, a spooky thing. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I guess I want to see a return of, of real um, dialogue and ideas and thoughtfulness and respect. And, right. you know, we hope that can happen. So we'll see. And I, I was learning sometime over the past year that the word dialogue is dialogos. It means two logos is like your truth. Your, you know, it's not you trying to manipulate and win an argument. It's between you and your conscience, what is true, and then interacting that with another logos, and then reaching some shared consensus. Yeah. That's not at all what happens in public discourse. It's all this pre-calculated, like, manipulative language. Right. Um, yeah, and it's th- certainly left us feeling politically homeless. It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know what I am now. <laughs> yeah. I never knew, like, back home either. Like, it was always so polarized, but yeah. And there are buzzwords, so you have to be very careful about what words you say because words just take on this meaning, and now if you say certain words, it's just assumed. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, so everybody's, like, tiptoes when they talk about politics. It's a very weird time. That's true. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move on to... A fun question. <laughs> so, Existential question. risk aside. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> it was so great. Okay. Um, so without, without getting in trouble, naming names and stuff, what was the craziest thing you ever witnessed in your field? Oh, <laughs> gosh. Um, okay. Um, so we had a guest conductor who shall remain nameless, um, who I, who was a very talented and, and a very important person. Um, and we were playing, we, we were in rehearsal and, um, one of our, one of our colleagues, one of our principal colleagues asked this conductor for some clarification on, you know, would you like this sort of long or short, a question kind of like that. And, mm -hmm. and the conductor proceeded to give a very elaborate, very over the top response to this <laughs> very simple <laughs> question. And so, um, the the colleague of ours said, well, okay, but would you like it sort of long or short? <laughs> and um, so I think perhaps the conductor took some offense to that comment, that question. And we played it, we played it again through. And um, the conductor said something a little salty back to our colleague. And um, within seconds, I, within just half a second, maybe, of this conductor's salty response, you could feel the entire orchestra come together as like one. It was like a three musketeers moment that, yeah. that you know, I mean, perhaps this, this colleague, you know, could have even more gracefully phrased phrased their question. But as soon as the conductor was less than polite to one of our own, we just banded together. It was it was an invisible drawing of swords. And <laughs> I really I've never experienced something so quick that 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 conductor was out of line and we were going to protect our own. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen anything quite like that. That's funny. Wow. Especially as a guest conductor, I guess, right? You're just like, yeah. us. <laughs> I'm assuming he didn't come back. <laughs> Not since. Um and and then of course, I mean I, I probably really can't say this story, but there was a time MTT broke a baton on stage when I was a fellow. <laughs> and that was a very <laughs> spooky experience. And, and that's probably the scariest thing I have ever seen. Broke it like hit into something or broke it like snapped, snapped oh. it. Oh, snapped okay. in half in, in a moment of of extreme anger <laughs> and pretty never... justified, yes. Oh, wow. uh. I, I can't imagine him. I mean, I don't know him well yet, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there was there, there was a, an instance. It was it was I think a justified anger, but it was also super super scary. It was Shostakovich five. So oh. wow, okay. well, that piece makes you a Brings base level of yeah. anger and yes, exactly Russian <laughs> anger. <laughs> yes, big time. All right, if it wasn't violin or another string instrument, can you see yourself playing any other instrument? Does one pop into your mind? Um, gosh, maybe maybe the piano. Mm -hmm. Maybe. It seems like a good one to know. Like yeah. it's it's yeah. really versatile. <laughs> I love I love the repertoire and my mom yeah. did that. I, I think I would enjoy the piano. But I'm for me terrible. it's like I used to play piano a lot and I've just piano. gotten rustier and rustier, but you know, the idea of just being able to sit down at home and just play a complete piece that doesn't, isn't missing yes. parts or something, mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. 
Yeah. No intonation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's, That's the, the best, best part. part. Yeah. The best. So. Yeah. <laughs> Just forget about that whole category in your mind. It's like exactly. the piano's in tune. Buy an electric keyboard. You know, you never have to tune it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Last question. Um, when can you remember laughing the hardest in life? Oh. Or recently. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so one of my colleagues in the orchestra, um, Isabel Troutwine. Oh, I love uh, she, her. We yes, just saw she, her like two days ago. <laughs> yes. So she she coaches at New World a lot. She was herself a New World fellow. Um, she is probably the person that makes me frequently laugh to the point of stomach cramps on a regular basis. <laughs> and whether that's her stories, because she tells very hilarious stories, things that have happened at orchestra tours. She tells incredible jokes. Um, but probably the time I've laughed the hardest is when she and some other Cleveland Orchestra friends and I were, were at New World to play a side-by-side -side a few years ago. And we, we were in this in this tiny little, imagine a Miami rooftop swimming pool that's mm -hmm. very shallow. <laughs> it's kind of like a kiddie pool. And she had this idea that, that the two of us could could have races across this long, shallow pool with our feet in the air and, and just <laughs> moving with our hands underneath this kiddie pool. And I about died and I even <laughs> laughed thinking about this I, I I that was the time in my life that I think I laughed for about an hour without stopping <laughs> and there's a picture of this somewhere you have to ask Isabel <laughs> or you stop for that. like 10 seconds you're like oh I got it and to then breathe. it comes right back yeah <laughs> yes exactly yeah I love the <laughs> your body knows like all right you're going to actually die if you don't stop and breathe yes for a <laughs> exactly Isabel can make people laugh that way <laughs> <laughs> and then your abs the next day are sore as if you did a workout. It's so true. <laughs> it's true. Crunches. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. This was Thank a fun you. conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much, you guys. It's it's good to meet you and good to see you again. And um, yeah. I appreciate you having me on. So All right. yeah, Thank you. So this should come out sometime this week. I have a pretty cool. open schedule, so I should get to it. <laughs> Theoretically, <laughs> unless cool. we sit by the pool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have foot races. True. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to see you guys. Thanks so much. All right. Have this. a good Thank one. You. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.